on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. This is an Irish independent podcast. This podcast was first released on the 17th of April 2023, before Jerry Hutch was acquitted of the murder of David Byrne at Dublin's Regency Hotel in 2016. Today on the Indo Daily, inside the Regency Hotel attack with the journalist who was there. The Regency Hotel attack in February 2016 was one of the most notorious and brazen crimes in Irish history. Our understanding at the moment is that there were at least two gunmen who were believed to have been dressed in Garda-style uniforms, security-style uniforms, waiting in the room. uh, And they produced semi-automatic weapons and started shooting. It started a gangland war on a scale never seen on the streets of Dublin. And the death toll from the Hutch-Kinnahan feud would eventually reach 18. Much has been written and said about that day, but there is one journalist who is more qualified than any of us to speak about it because he was actually there. There was a fear that there may be kind of target put on her back. There was only 21 at the time as well, so kind of still only starting off in journalism and it was certainly a baptism of fire. Irish independent news correspondent Robin Schiller, what brought you to the Regency Hotel on that now infamous day. So basically that weekend, uh, boxing fight night was due to take place in the National Stadium on Saturday the 6th of February. And obviously the day before Wayne was taking place. Now the reason why, like myself, was there as a non-sports journalist was because boxers from the MGM stable, I was known then, um, now MTK, were involved. And Daniel Kinnan had a very close links. He was actually the founder of that boxing gym. And his boxes were meant to be there. Now, in the previous few months, there had been at least two attempts in Daniel Kinnan's life. Uh, Gary Hutch, a nephew of Gerard the Monk Hutch, had been shot dead. And there was also an attempt on the Monk's life on New Year's Eve 2015 in Spain. So a lot of tensions had been building up to this boxing way. And um, there's obviously two gangs uh, going to war or certainly leading up towards some kind of gangland war. So as a journalist, what were you hoping to achieve from being there? Were you going to be able to write an article on the back of that or were you just trying to observe to see who was mixing? A bit of both. We kind of, we did expect Daniel Kinnan to be there possibly in some kind of capacity given that he was you know, very close to these boxers and managing them. Um, we'd also, there'd been media reports in the weeks leading up to it about a guard presence, a guard operation. So we were surprised when myself and Colin O'Reilly and the photographer arrived that uh, Friday afternoon to not see any guard of presence, a visible guard of presence at least. And so tell me about, you get out to the Regency Hotel, you go in, you observe who's there. Presumably you're not 
taking out a notebook or the photographer that's with you isn't going in with a, a big um, camera or recording device. You're kind of undercover. Uh, essentially, yeah, we made a decision before we went out that we'd go, we'd blend in with the crowd, we'd essentially go undercover. Um, and we went into the room that kind of paid dividends because I remember distinctly a woman saying she was involved in some kind of media for MGM, MTK, uh, asking the person at the door to check the media credentials of people going in. So they're obviously very cautious of what media were being let into the way. And so we just blended in as general sports fans going in to watch his way and take place. And, you know, Colin was taking pictures on his phone discreetly of the boxers and what was happening. And I was kind of taking notes roughly on my phone. But, you know, the decision to, uh, I suppose, be discreet as possible paid off because we were there for about half an hour without being disturbed in any kind of way. And what did you see? What was the atmosphere like before the attack actually happened? It was a normal boxing way. And, you know, there was about 20, 30 boxers on the cards. Their families were there. There was children there. General boxing punters were there. Um, now, at the back of the way, and there was Daniel Kinnan was there in the, the room himself. Part of what we know now from the various court cases connected to this is that the gunmen couldn't find Daniel Killahan, but you're happy you saw him. He was there. Oh, 100%, yeah. One thing I did notice, and he was he seemed to be going in and out of the room making phone calls or taking phone calls, like, sporadically, you know, once or twice I noticed him kind of leaving and coming back in. And at about you know, half an hour into the way, and when it was dying down and finishing up, um, I noticed that he wasn't in the room anymore and I kind of assumed he was taking another one of his phone calls and that's when we decided to leave and literally within about 30 seconds it all kicked off. So it might have just been pure luck that he may have taken another phone call or had to leave the room for that brief, those brief few moments and was lucky not to be there when that, uh, that shooting started. So you were leaving essentially when the gunmen arrived? Yeah, myself and Colin, we were we walking out the front door down the steps of the hotel and heard a bit of commotion behind us and you know glass breaking and I think one there was a group of about five or six people walking out behind us and I heard one man kind of exclaiming it's all kicking off in there and you know, not really knowing what it was I turned back around and in front of us was the Silver Ford Transit van and three men then kind of emanated from the other side of it you couldn't see them getting out but they were there all of a sudden and they were dressed as you know we know now fake RD at the time I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I thought they might be real guardy given the fact that there was you know, serious criminals inside. Daniel Kill himself was there. It wouldn't be unusual for you know, specialist guardy units to maybe go undercover and use those kind of tactics to uh, carry out an operation discreetly. But um, they you know, came towards the group we were walking out with. They started shouting, get the F down, get the F out of here. Uh, carrying fairly big weapons. We now know they're AK-47s at the time. I just knew they're big guns, to be honest, kind of looking at the faces. And uh, as they walked past us then, um, I think one of them let off a shot at the front door. And uh, yeah, it was just pure chaos then, you know, the kind of people running out, screaming, children hiding behind walls. It was just absolute chaos. And even like looking back now, it seems a bit silly, but we weren't, I wasn't myself quite sure still what it was, if it was a guard, guard operation or not. But uh, unfortunately, it kind of fairly quickly uh, became clear that it wasn't, that there's something far more sinister to it. And what's going through your head? Because that strikes me as one of those rare moments in life where you never know how you will react until you're faced with it. I don't think any of us could run that scenario in our heads and say what we would do. So what was going through your head? 
Uh, firstly, was Jesus, this could be a guard operation, you know, given who's inside. So I kind of crossed out of the, across the road, out of harm's way, a bit further up away from the hotel, and actually rang the news desk um, to let them know what's going on. I think it, it took a couple of calls to actually get through to them, but when I finally got through, it was also going on. I just kind of reported back, listen, I'm not sure what's going on. There's possibly guardy here. There's been shots fired. I'll let you know shortly what's happening. And I was kind of myself watching from, you know, not, not a distance, but certainly a bit of out of harm's way. And in fairness to Colin O'Reardon, he stayed right outside the hotel. And being the experienced photographer that he was, he took out his camera phone and took these very famous pictures of these, you know, we know now a hit team running up the steps with their clashing of cough weapons um, just literally seconds or moments before they shot David Byrne dead. Were you afraid? Uh, in the moment, no, because it was just pure confusion trying to figure out what was going on. And it's not false bravado. Just looking back to now, we hadn't a clue what was happening. And you know, even reading the news that's first kind of shows how how little I knew of what was happening and didn't really understand the seriousness of it. Um, looking back now, it's obviously a you know terrifying incident for everyone involved that day. But certainly at the time, it was just try to figure out what was happening and try I suppose do our job we were there to do our job in the first place we weren't actually there as journal, as you know spectators for the event so we were there to work and we were definitely put to work that afternoon What about later that night though or even the next day when it becomes a little bit more clear what had taken place here at that point were you thinking Jesus what was I in the middle of Yeah I think over the you know over the few days after that and having to give statements to Gardy and all that you kind of realise well you know, we were kind of in the middle of that and probably lucky to have left the room 30 seconds earlier. We would have been right in the middle of it if we hadn't. And then obviously the, the kind of escalation that feud as well, you know, you're basically, I wouldn't say quite a war zone, but, you know, Dublin at the time was... It was ruthless. It wasn't a great place to be, you know. You had people who weren't as involved in crime as others being, you know, there's no such thing as, a, you know, nobody deserves to die and nobody should be shot dead and there's certain people who were being targeted who had no real involvement in this kind of... And there was innocent civilians died in the the bloodshed that took place afterwards. Yeah, it kind of really showed how vicious these gangs were and particularly the Kinnan gang were um, and how intent they were in wiping the Hutch gang out. You did have an interaction with one of the gunmen. Uh, one or two, I'm not quite sure, but definitely, you know, two of them were kind of shouting at us, get the F out of here, get the F down. They're quite clear Dublin accents. Um, they the faces covered now, so not much can be said about them or who they were, who they might have been. But uh, certainly, uh, they're very um, aggressive in what they were doing. Understandably so, because they're there to to kill somebody. So they weren't going to go about it too nicely. But yeah, that kind of added to the confusion where they're you know, shouting at people, "Get down and get the f out of here!" Just added to the absolute chaos. Yeah, I, I know you're trying to play it down a little bit, but you did have a gun pointed at you during this. Uh, yeah. Um, I think one, maybe two, but definitely one from memory was scanning, you know, kind of pointing the gun side to side from that group running out and was essentially checking who was coming out and, you know, if it was somebody of interest to them or not. And that's how David Byrne was shot because he came across them. They shot him, same with uh, Sean McGovern and the other individual shot who was also linked to that gang. So they were certainly, Daniel Kennan was the prime target that day, but they seemed to want to shoot anyone who had any kind of, you know, close links to that criminal gang. So the gunmen go into the hotel, they go into the room where the weigh-in is taking place. David Byrne actually gets shot in the lobby of the hotel, just inside the door where you and the photographer had been. And what happens afterwards? Uh, well, it come, becomes apparent fairly quickly then that something really bad has happened inside. Um, the the guardie, the hit team 
we see them running out. I'm kind of walking back towards the hotel entrance at this point and you can hear them shouting, he's not effing in there, I can't effing find them. And somebody else shouting, go, go, effing, go. And at that stage, you're kind of saying, right, there's something really, really wrong here where, you know, they're clearly not guardy. Um, you have people kind of walking out from the foyer down the steps saying they're not bleeding guards, they're not bleeding guards. And fairly quickly, we didn't go back into the, the foyer because people were coming out and dribs and drabs. But uh, you could see from the kind of what they were saying, I can't remember exactly what they're saying, but just the manner in which they were talking and the words were said, it was quite clear that somebody was seriously injured inside. And that obviously turned out to be David Byrne, who was shot dead in that, uh, in that hotel foyer. And Robin, we know after David Byrne got shot that the gang scrambled back into that silver transit van that you described. And we know that they escaped through a housing estate um, right beside the Regency Hotel and, and got away before the guards arrived. What did you do at that point? Did you hang around? Uh, we stayed outside for a good 20 minutes, half an hour maybe. It's kind of time in these situations, you kind of lose track of it. It seems like hours, but it was probably only about 20 minutes. And one thing I noticed was when that transit van was leaving towards Grace Park Manor, I think it's the name of the estate, uh, a jeep followed it and kind of added to the confusion of why is this jeep you know, driving after this van as a part of the hit team or is it separate or is it Gardy? and actually turned out two of our colleagues from Sunday World um, Alan Cherry and Ernie Leslie were there that day as well and Ernie got these really famous pics that have been used in the two trials um, of the gunman and drag and flat cap running away from the scene so they were there that day as well uh, it's telling that there was you know, four members of the press there and uh, Gardy went over to be seen Was there no guards there at all? Certainly, there's no visible presence. Um, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for Gardy and these kind of clandestine operations to be there discreetly if they you were. You would imagine there. we would know that now, though, after the trial. There's been speculation and rumours that they may have had some one or two plainclothes officers in there. Certainly, it's never been kind of proven or said definitively if there was or not. Yeah, I but mean, hindsight is wonderful, but if uh, the Irish Independent and the Herald and the Sunday World, indeed, you mentioned, thought that it was worth going here and sending crime reporters to this event, it does seem like a massive oversight that there was nobody there from the guards. How long did it actually take before the guards got to the scene? Or do we know who con- who rang them? How did that develop? Um, there was a few people definitely in the Gardaí. I think there's a centre near the Regency Hotel and a lot of people seem to have gathered there. I remember the kind of shutters we pulled down as well. The shop owner didn't know what was going on, having all these people run in. So I think the first kind of Gardaí arrived there paramedics were on the scene and just slowed in dribs and drabs more and more guardy were coming on the scene on emergency services and in fairness to them trying to ascertain what happened was very difficult because they're just you know, you know at least a dozen people trying to get out of there being blocked in their cars being blocked by guardy in the car park there was you know wheels spinning and guards being told to F off and where to go and get out of my way and they just they didn't really have a clue the first few minutes arrived so there what actually happened even when the guards did arrive uh, oh, completely. More tense, I suppose, you know, because it just happened, people were reacting to it. Um, there was obviously, you know, at least one brother of David Byrne, Liam Byrne, was there, and David Byrne's friends were there. And he would have been highly agitated what happened, you know. It's, it doesn't even bear thinking about seeing your you know, friend or loved one being shot dead, regardless of what, what stuff they're involved in or criminality they're involved in. And just Gardy arriving on the scene and trying to get people to tell them what happened and get them to stay there just added to that tension and just we kind of decided then after about 20 minutes that for our own safety and the news desk told us as well just it was getting too getting too hairy there so we were told essentially we'd draw from the scene and go back to go back to base here in Table Street Can you remember when you found out that David Byrne had been shot dead that it was a murder you had effectively part witnessed 
you know, the short trip back to the office, the name David Byrne, like even sources were texting me saying, did you hear what happened in the Reedsy Hotel? And I was saying, yeah, funny enough, I was actually there. So it was kind of within an hour, you're getting all these texts, people knew it was David Byrne who shot dead. He was obviously known to Gardy and I suppose the reality of what happened and what we just witnessed and the, I suppose you couldn't really measure what kind of effect that would have, but kind of knew that even that this was a major thing. And, you know, to, to run into a crowded hotel with... Kalashnikov assault rifles shoot dead a prominent member of a crime gang um, it was going to have repercussions and we saw that over the last you know the following two years after the attack just how uh, how much of a knock on effect that had I remember seeing yourself and Colin here in the office that evening after it happened and it it is fair to say that while you mightn't have said it there you were shell shocked I think there's the, there's and that's very reasonable the days after, people might forget at this point, but the inner city of Dublin, where we are here, um, where a lot of the Hutch family are based, it was flooded with guardy, armed guardy. It was the kind of patrols that I don't think we had ever really seen in Dublin or even on the island, maybe except during the Troubles uh, in certain parts of Northern Ireland more so. You had to keep your head low. I, I remember... You never put a byline on anything you wrote. Mm. We never put a byline on those famous pictures that ran on the front of the Irish Independent and the Herald at the time because there was a lot of concern for your safety for having been witnesses to it. Yeah, that kind of that decision was made that evening, I think, where we wouldn't we wouldn't identify the facts or identify ourselves as being there. I know there's radio crests coming in the following week and we just decided we won't do anything because there was a fear that there may be kind of target put on the back. There was no, thankfully. And unfortunately, it was, you know, two of our colleagues who were actually threatened by that kid and gang in the weeks after. But there was, it was just a hairy situation. And, you know, being there, you wouldn't know what, what they could do, potentially what they'd be able to do, what they're capable of doing. And, you know, it was a decision now, seven years on, you know, talk about it and talk about that day. But at the time, it was certainly a, a tense time. And I think it was only, it was doing the maths there, I was only 21 at the time as well. So kind of still only starting off in journalism and, it was certainly a baptism of fire to go through that, I think, the first year working with the Herald and the Irish Independent. So. How did your family feel about that? Because there was safety measures put in place. There was real concern. I, I don't think we can overplay it. There was. Uh, they were great about it, to be honest. And look, the, the reality was nothing was ever probably going to happen, but it's not nice for them to kind of have these security measures and procedures and all put in place. But they're great and they're supportive and there's never a question of stop doing it or stop reporting or you know keep doing what you're doing and we'll support you. And, made a massive difference as well, you know, because it was tough um, those few months afterwards. So, And then the court cases after that, particularly the trial, you had to give evidence in. Giving evidence in a trial is never easy and giving it in the special criminal court in a major gangland trial makes it even more difficult. But yeah, you had to give a number of statements to, to Gardy over time and you've had to give evidence in court, not at the Hutch trial, in a separate trial, but the statements you gave and your recollection of that day is part of the evidence that went before the Special Criminal Court in the Hutch trial as well. How do you feel about that? I suppose that's the reason we can talk about this now, because justice has to be seen to be done in public. And therefore, the fact that you were there that day and witnessed so much of this is out in the public now anyway. You know, you can't, you can barely go a month over the last seven years in Irish journalism and particularly tabloid and crime coverage without mentioning Regency because such a monumental event. Uh, seeing the actual evidence in court and the CCV footage and all that does bring it back a bit and kind of refresh your memory a bit. Like it's not something you're going to easily forget but you do forget little bits here and there and it kind of, yeah, you do start to remember more stuff than when you're in court and seeing other people's evidence and the CCV footage and all that and it really hits home again what happened that day. 
I think it's fascinating that you've stuck with crime journalism having that traumatic experience of a of an AK-47 pointed at your face to witness something like that and yet you stuck with it. Why do you think that is? I think it's always something I want to do. I was, you know, reporting crime, um, even kind of being a teenager and all that and wanting to be a journalist was always a crime beat that interests me the most and it's a fascinating subject to cover. And yes, since, you know, even that day kind of reinvigorated that a bit more, you know, you're there for a massive event and um, seeing what you saw that day kind of gave you a lot of experience as well and it's it's a fascinating beat to cover and, you know, we cover all sorts. You, you speak to people who've had their lives ruined by criminality, by people involved in criminality and you're also reporting people, you know, who are ruining those lives. So I think it has a an important part to play in journalism and it's also a very interesting part and that's why, you know, we keep doing it and we'll keep doing it as well. And my thanks to Irish Independent News correspondent Robin Schiller for sharing his experience with us. Later today, we'll have the verdict in the Hutch trial direct from the court. And then tomorrow, our Indo-Daily series concludes with a look at the intriguing and potentially damaging political controversy that's wrapped up in the Regency case. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Garrett Mulhall, with sound by Niall McMonagall. Archive clips were from independent.ie and RTE News. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. 